0: Hello and welcome to the UIC Inc. Podcast, where episode to episode we interview different working scientists. This episode we have Dr. Nick Searing. And without any further ado, I would like to allow Dr. Searing to introduce himself. Dr. Nick, how are you?
1: Hi, Blake. Uh doing great. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing good. Happy to be talking to you. So can you tell us? What is the spelling of your name, and what do you do?
1: Oh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm Nick Sirian. Uh Last name is S Y R I it, N G. It's pronounced just like Syrian, like you uh, like your Syrian meat in a skillet or something like that. Uh, I am a biostatistician. I work at Corteva Agriscience.
0: Corteva, and what does Corteva Agriscience do?
1: Uh, Corteva Agriscience is one of the largest, uh, agricultural companies in the world. Uh, we, we do a couple really big things. So part of the company, about half the company or so is a seed company. So, okay. uh, we produce commercially, uh, we produce commercial seed for farmers. So like, you know, if, 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 you're in, you're in Illinois, I'm over in Iowa. If you're driving through and you see cornfields and soybean fields, uh, Probably half or so of that came from Corteva. Wow. Uh, Yeah. Uh, So right now, Corteva is the market leader in soybean. I think we have about 55% uh, product share uh, of soybean uh, in the United States. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's other big companies uh, in agroscience like like uh, Bayer, which uh, was formerly Monsanto. It's been mm-hmm. bought by Bayer a few years ago. Uh, BASF, uh, UPL, Syngenta, uh, just to name a few. Sure. Um, yeah, uh, you might see <clears throat> sometimes when you drive past cornfields, you'll see little signs that are uh, – the brand names of, of different seed that the farmers yes. are using a big yeah. one. Maybe you've seen before is pioneer and okay. pioneer is a Corteva brand. Uh, came, came from a merger. Uh, are, are they, yep. are they the symbol that's like the infinity
0: beneath the little plane? <laughs>
1: yeah, very good.
0: That's, I have that's, that. I have a hat
1: from them. Oh, well, <laughs> yep. That's pioneer. And, uh, Yeah, Pioneer is part of Corteva. Corteva actually came about uh, a few years ago as a big merger between uh, three different, really three different agricultural companies, Pioneer and uh, Dow and DuPont, the the divisions of Dow and DuPont, which are really chemical companies that were doing uh, crop science, agro-science. And so that's really the other half of the Corteva company, which is, Crop protection and crop okay. protection really refers to chemi- chemistry, chemicals, right. you know, things that are sprayed on fields, yeah. or uh, also coatings that are chemical coatings of seeds uh, that work as herbicides, fungicides, pesticides, uh, those those sorts of things. So it, it's it's uh, really a biochemistry company. Sure, um,
0: and. Could you restate your position and then
1: define it again? Oh yeah, sure. So um, I I have uh, a really generic job title, which is research scientist, uh, mm. which I, I think sounds really cool. It but, does. That's why uh, we're talking to you. <laughs> but. Uh, tons of people at my company are actually called research scientists and, and we do vastly different things so okay. I, I sort of i sort of have a sub job title which is biostatistician, bio-statistician. A- and and that's a lot more honest <laughs> uh i am really a uh, i am really a statistician not so much a scientist i i didn't come from a, a science background okay. i i have a phd in statistics and And so my knowledge, my expertise is really about statistics. And most of of my work is supporting uh, people who you you would probably refer to more as scientists or uh, plant scientists and plant breeders. So what sort of
0: data do you start digging into as a biostatistician to help these folks out?
1: Right, yeah. So, so that kind of goes back to the roughly the two halves of of the company, which is uh, on on one half the crop protection or or sort of more like chemistry business, and and the other half being the seed commercial seed production business. And and so I work in the the seed part of the business. So seed production, um, yeah. So so really, what I'm involved with is the plant breeding or crop breeding part of the company that is uh, continually uh, trying to improve crops that we offer as products in the form of seed, uh, and we do that through field trials. So we have new genetics, new, new crops on really a, a, a seasonal basis that aligns with the seasons of, of growing crops outside in the fields in different climates around the world and it aligns with the maturities of those, of those plants. Uh, and we go out and we, we do plant crossings. We cross plants, we reproduce plants and uh, make selections. That's what plant breeders do. They make selections to get the best uh, hybrids or inbred crops that they can, uh, that, that we measure in various ways. A lot of it has to do with yield but lots of other traits too. For example, disease resistance. Um, So we have lots and lots of experiments, field experiments where we're growing huge numbers of crops in fields in various places and uh, recording a lot of data about how those crops perform and then assessing what, uh, what are the best ones and trying to make good selections so what
0: would be like a a typical
1: sample size for one of these uh well it certainly varies by crop and by uh what you're trying to measure um corn and soybean are the biggest where you know we have dozens of breeding programs in um multiple continents. I mean, we, we have breeding programs for corn in North America and in South America and in Asia. Uh, and so th- there are hundreds of locations where we grow corn. Uh, and I, I couldn't actually even tell you <laughs> how, how many you know, data points that comes to, but it's, uh, it, it's a lot every year. Uh, and then for other crops, uh, we have much smaller programs. Uh, we have, uh, for instance, we we grow mustard in India. That's a very small program. Um, we we have alfalfa, which is grown as you know, fodder for for cattle to eat, and and that's an, a very small program. Um, sunflower, which is grown for seed oil, uh, we have that in. Um, maybe two locations, I think, in South Africa, and uh, I'm blanking on the other place, but so so it depends a lot by the crop. Uh, we might have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of locations that we grow every single season, uh, or, or maybe it, it might just be like a dozen.
0: Uh, now, are you in this data set, just because, uh, as a hobby, I'm growing my own mustard and I really enjoy it. Are you getting <laughs> the species of mustard, uh, their, their names in your data set? Or are these all, you know, experiment 21 a versus 21 B. Oh,
1: you get yeah. The species names? Oh, you know, it would be great if we had fun names, but, uh, yeah. you know, we generate tens of thousands of names. Yeah. Um, because you know, that, that's kind of, that gets to the, the number of hybrids. If it's a hybrid crop like corn or, um, yeah. you know, we, we grow, uh, we end up producing, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of hybrids that go through a selection process over several years. Right. You're uh, organizing data. You're not yeah. marketing the seed. <laughs> right. So I I, yeah, I, yeah. I I can't
0: look in the burpee right. catalog
1: and be like, yeah, I need
0: the 21 AB 2023. Uh.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, um, they once once they get commercialized, they uh-huh. they get a, a certain kind of name. But even the commercial products have very coded. Um, we do refer to to commercial products by coded names. So unfortunately, I know there there's not any really fun name or anything like that. Sure. Uh, and we don't tend to attach the names of specific. Breeders to to the products that they um, produce because we sure. think of it as a team effort. So that's nice. The credit goes to you know more people more widely.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, I'm looking at a a bed of green wave outside of my window right now.
1: Well, that sounds successful.
0: You know the the two beds in the backyard did better than the front yard, but that's okay. I'm still getting a yield. I'll still have some spicy mustard for the fall yeah
1: so how did you get interested in science nick uh how did i get well you know and maybe i'll interpret that a bit more broadly about how did i get interested in statistics then but um so you know way way back when i finished college my first job out of college was in the insurance industry and i was working as an actuary and and there's a lot of you know that that's kind of a job where you work with data um but you know i only had a bachelor's degree there's a lot of interesting problems in insurance uh for for example you know if you're a big insurance company and you insure a lot of houses in florida for instance you really have to be good at hurricane modeling and catastrophe modeling and you have to be able to predict uh losses for for those catastrophic events and so I I was really interested in getting into modeling you know trying to figure out trying to make predictions or just using data to, to learn um, and I think just kind of the place where I was working and this is probably true more broadly um, there are certain barriers to entry to doing certain kinds of work um, and that doesn't mean you you can't learn a lot of things on the job, but you do kind of have to have some kind of credential to get your foot in the door. And so for me, that was really going back to school and getting a graduate degree in statistics so that I could do that kind of work that just seemed more interesting to me. Um, So that was kind of the path that I took. I I went back to graduate school uh, and then I did some work in academia um, and, and I ended up in the agriculture industry. Um, and I guess if I would just say, you know, if you're really interested in statistics, um, agriculture is kind of where it's at. Uh, really, Agriculture is where statistics started. Okay. Um, uh, the kind of the oldest statistics, you know, back to R.A. Fisher, Ronald Fisher, who kind of came up with, a lot of the early statistics it it really all revolved around uh agriculture and and field experiments and designing experiments and trying to do trying to farm better and we're still doing that Uh, and we've made a lot of progress but uh it's in many ways it's still on the cutting edge of, of applied statistics
0: um well just because of the field that I'm in and the field that you're in. uh, Do you think you would need any instrumentation to measure the pH sulfur or carbon content of your soil samples in your fields?
1: Oh my goodness. Um, I mean, and, and I'm, and I'm not the person to talk to about that stuff, but I have gotten quite a few nice tours and Uh uh, even in, in the office building where I work, the first floor is all, uh, science labs. Okay. Um, and, and I've gotten tours of, of those places and they have lots of nice shiny equipment. I'll tell you that. And I don't know all about what it does, yeah. but, but uh, there is a huge amount of chemistry going on there. Um, even within, even on the side, you know, that does more seed work, but especially on the crop protection side where yeah. uh, we employ a lot of analytical chemists and a lot of people who are trying to discover, you know, novel compounds that have, that have some, you know, activity in terms of pesticide or herbicide or, you know, those things that are relevant to agriculture. Um, so there's a huge need for um, chemists and scientists and, and also for laboratory equipment and, and, and all of, and lab experimentation. And we have, uh, yeah, we, we also have um, people who study Insects. I guess you'd call them like entomologists. Mm-hmm. We have uh, insect labs where we breed insects. That's, oh, nice. That, yeah, that, <laughs> that is something that I never would have known that we did until I got a tour of our insect breeding facility. Because, you know, one thing that we do is we produce plants that have, you know, based on their genetics, they have some resistance to insects. Sure. And, then, and then one thing that we're interested in is how long is that inherited resistance going to last before the insects evolve to, you know, eat them any eat them anyway. And so what we can do is we can breed insects, many, many generations of insects in an insect lab and figure out how, how long is this product going to be viable for until the insects have evolved to not, you know, not care about that kind of resistance and bypass that. And so we, we also have, he, you know labs full of bugs <laughs> that is disgusting uh, and awesome it is yeah it smells it does not really all right it. yeah it's a funky oh. yeah uh, <laughs> i wouldn't i, I wouldn't want to work there but well the serious statistician <laughs> if you're a scientist, yeah, scientist, yeah, it might be a different yeah. story <laughs> that oh, is they, so yeah. cool they they love it they love their bugs <laughs> that's good that's good
0: that is absolutely fascinating so uh do you get to do much direct cross department communication or are you guys kind of all on your own
1: oh um yeah i think coordinating with people across the country is or across the company is is a is a huge challenge, but also something that's really, you know, fun and, and rewarding. So uh, one of the things that I do, one, one of the things that's inside my responsibilities is supporting breeding programs in Asia Pacific. So I actually have a lot of communication with breeders uh, and their teams in India and in the Philippines and in Indonesia um, and in the future, probably in China as well so we, we have we are a global company we have people all over the place um, and so we we do communicate um, with lots of different lots of different, uh, people on different teams I, I also you know work a lot with people who are kind of doing the software end of it uh, in terms of getting all of our uh, data analysis in uh, sort of automated uh, pipelines of of uh software programs so uh it's working with a lot of different groups that's
0: fantastic sounds like you're gonna have to have corteva send you a couple of field trips out to southeast Asia. oh
1: yeah we've yeah uh probably um that's the kind of thing you ask for in the first quarter and not the third quarter of the year right. <laughs> yeah the later yeah. you get in the year the you know the less the less the company wants to spend money on that stuff but uh, oh, uh, of course yeah yeah, definitely yeah. in the future, I think that'll be on the horizon.
0: Nice. So what are some of the main challenges in your field specifically?
1: Oh, um, well, I think, you know, there's, there's kind of some general challenges and some specific challenges. Uh, I think the biggest challenges are common to lots of companies of the size that we're at. Um, like I was talking about coordinating across very large teams of people many different areas of expertise, um, who are located all over the world, you know, dealing with different time zones and, uh, people with different, uh, native languages, you know, so that's, uh, that's a challenge. Um, I think in agriculture time is, is a big challenge because we are always working with, um, the, the growing seasons of, different crops and in different parts of the world and the maturity times of those crops. And, you know, once the harvest is in, you got to make decisions and, and pick your, pick your best uh, performing hybrids and, and inbred lines and and move on. Um, we've got to stay on the cutting edge of technology to stay competitive uh, and to try to keep a competitive edge and advantage there. Uh, Also regulatory. So being a seed company, we are in the business of GMO, uh, genetically modified organisms, and the kind of global regulatory environment around those types of products changes kind of all the time. Mm. Uh, There's a lot of uh, public perception of that that can be a challenge. Um, Regulatory environments are influenced a lot by international politics (laughs) so um that that's that's a big challenge as well so uh
0: what are some specific challenges as a statistician for what you're doing
1: yeah um i think always trying to incorporate kind of the latest um technology uh like uh, for instance, drones. Uh, yeah. We've been using drones for a number of years now, but it's picked up a lot more uh, more recently as drone technology has gotten better, as the cameras are getting better, as sort of the, the range and battery life mm-hmm. and controllability of drones gets better. Uh, so kind of what I'm talking about is um, when we grow crops in fields, we can have people go out in the fields and you know look at things and measure things with their hands and their eyes and and write these things down um, and another thing that we can do is we can have drones fly over fields and take pictures uh, and and then try to use those pictures to uh, gain some information about you know yield or disease or 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 all sorts of different uh, traits uh, about the plants growing in the fields. And um, the the drone technology is, I think gonna be a huge uh, advantage to us moving forward because, uh, you know, drones do have a cost and they have some battery life and range and they have some issues with cloud cover and things like that, but, um, and weather but all you guys are going way up there oh well cloud cover well that's that's also kind of like fog and uh so something that happens over uh a lot of fields is you get evaporation oh Uh, sure yeah you get like sweating coming off of crops and then you don't get a clear image yeah that can happen so that's kind of what i'm talking about there but sure um there there are some different you know difficulties with with drones but ultimately uh using with using drones we can get a lot more data than um with humans you know there's there's costs associated with getting people out in fields to take measurements manually um and so if we can fly a drone overhead we can probably actually plant at more locations and get more data and take measurements multiple times And um, that's going to change the way that we analyze the data for those types of experiments. Um, uh, Well, actually, so there's a few challenges there. One is changing the way we analyze the data. Another is actually taking those measurements from drones and uh, figuring out how to make them useful. Because, you know, it's one thing to have people go out and harvest a field of, say, cotton, uh, and it's another to fly a drone over and take pictures and convert them to black and white and see, you know, how many pixels are white and try to estimate sure. the cotton yield from that. So so there's a big, that's kind of a machine learning problem. Yeah, that's what uh, I was thinking. Yeah, of, of taking image data and converting it into something that's going to correlate really highly with what would be human observed data. So that's a major challenge. Uh, Do you have anybody looking at
0: something along the lines of these new large language learning models or these large training data sets where you're taking the drone images and laying that over hand gathered data so you have image sets that you could maybe train a machine learning application on?
1: we absolutely do that yeah very cool right yeah we we absolutely have been doing that for a number of years now of uh yeah taking taking image data and comparing it with uh human observed data now and and that's an that (laughs) that's something you got to be careful about too because uh, the human observed data that doesn't necessarily mean it's true you know, when you're talking sure. about yeah, yes. like a lot of times when you're talking about um, uh, what you would call supervised learning in machine yeah. learning is is you know you have some known data uh, like predictions or labels or categories, uh, and then you train a model to um, learn the categories of unlabeled data, right? So you can treat human observed um, yield or or some other trait as the known label but it's actually not the truth it's just the human observed version of the truth so there are actually instances where drone data is higher quality we we've been able to show that for some for some things drone data will be better than what a human would measure for other things uh it might be worse or or there could be some disagreement and so those are challenges in in terms of figuring out how to more efficiently observe things but also still getting a high quality of data
0: so would you say the statistics that you are analyzing is uh just helping the greater team and the company decide on which seeds to save and procreate? Or what exactly is it that your statistic work is doing to help your company?
1: Yeah, I would say, you know, we we are helping to do two things, really. We're we're um, designing the experiments. We're figuring out the best way to actually construct experiments to learn the most and uh, account for as much variability as we can, um, so that we're not, um, you know, we're, we're not confounding different variables. Like we're not planting. All of one type of seed in one location, and a different type of seed in a second location, and then sure. you know, type of seed is confounded with location, and you don't right. know if the difference is due to location or seed, right? So, so one thing that we can do is we can design, uh, have the best design practices possible, and then the other thing that we can do is once the experiments have been done all of the hard work of actually implementing (laughs) uh growing crops and fields and harvesting and collecting data once that stuff is done then we can analyze the data which is basically taking a huge number of numbers and condensing them down into meaningful summaries that that the scientists the plant scientists the breeders can then take and make decisions on, uh, so so just providing them with the the most informative summaries of the data so that they can go ahead and make good choices.
0: Well, that's very nice. They trust all of you to design those important experiments.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you know th- that trust is earned uh, through yeah. close relationships, and yeah, you know, that's that's like with the the drone data. Um, mm-hmm. They didn't, you know, people didn't just bring drones in and into the company and and tell the breeders, Hey, from now on, we're going to start flying drones over your fields and and you're going to get drone data instead of human observed data. No, like we, we had to, (laughs) you you have to work with the breeders and they have to be part of that decision-making process. And, and everyone has to be on board that that this is the right thing to do. And this is going to improve our understanding rather than, uh, then take away from what we're trying to do so it's it's an earned trust there
0: so when it's planting season and you're between harvests and there's not a lot of data coming in are you out there yoking the ox and pushing the plow
1: thankfully no i'm <laughs> uh in the air conditioning and <laughs> yeah so um Right, yeah, there, there's definitely a seasonality to the workflows that happen. Um, planting and harvest are are the most uh, strenuous times, but in between planting and harvest, there's a lot of other data collection that happens. There are a lot of traits uh, that are observed, that are measured while the plants are growing in the fields. Sure. So yeah. there's, there's dozens of things that might be measured. Uh, some of them are, you know, like disease traits uh heights of plants the way that they grow the process of growth over time um Uh, yeah so where are you
0: guys i mean i know that it's observed or very easily observable are you guys pulling your weather data from a official third party or do you have your own instruments sitting right there in the field
1: oh for weather data um that's so that's actually something i don't entirely know i i know that there there are certain weather models that we use that rely on noaa data they're one of the people that we work with which is why i was curious yeah (laughs) yeah that's that is a big one um Mm And some of that is used to evaluate the different locations where we plant Mm -hmm. uh, and make comparisons or kind of categorize locations uh, based on weather to to try to kind of get like apples to apples comparisons in terms of weather. Uh, So that is something that is done. Um, I don't I don't think that we have weather stations but i that's uh, that's something that i don't really know in terms of how we i don't think that we do well, weather measurements i mean we we will certainly do measurements on you know if a if a field gets flooded yeah. Uh, for, for instance uh um, yeah. you know we, we can easily observe those kinds of things or or if there's drought we we can measure I would say extreme things like that, but sure. as far as like daily weather, you know, and like high wind events. High wind events are a big deal because they knock over plants. Sure, um, it's, you could be yeah. checking
0: for the uh, robust nature of a soy or corn stalk.
1: Yeah, that's called uh, root lodging or standability. Whether whether or not yeah, corn falls over. No, corn you think... falls over. You can't you can't get you you can't harvest corn if it falls over. <laughs> nope
0: uh with root lodging do you think that is impacted by the health of our soils
1: oh um yeah so i uh being someone who doesn't know a whole lot about plant growth i (laughs) i don't i don't know a lot about root lodging uh i can tell you one really interesting thing that, that that may happen in the future is um Corteva as well as other companies I know Bayer is doing this uh some some companies are trying to make corn shorter. Oh uh, yeah so no more knee
0: high by July.
1: <laughs> well it's usually actually a lot higher than that <laughs> but um yeah but uh yeah t- just trying to make the plants themselves actually shorter without oh. making without making them a lot smaller so keeping right keeping the, ear. the ears big keeping actually the leaves pretty big but sure. but kind of making the stock shorter not skinnier but but just overall shorter it's that's of course controlled by a lot of genetics and right. it's a pretty challenging thing to do uh but yeah there's there is a lot of effort especially because especially in sort of the Great Plains in the middle of the United States, yeah. uh, wind and wind events cause a lot of damage and loss for corn. Um, so that's something to keep an eye out for. Maybe in the next decade or so, you'll you'll be dri- driving by cornfields and you'll be wondering why they look so darn short. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, we were able to get small dogs pretty quick. Maybe we'll be able to get small corn pretty quick. Could be. Yeah. Um, more weather stuff unrelated and I'm sure fascinating to all of our listeners out there. did you guys get those crazy flash floods yesterday?
1: Oh no out in Iowa no yeah. uh, no I don't I don't I mean we really have had hardly any rain at all so <laughs> we
0: we've been just getting every time we get rain we've been getting absolutely hammered. Wow yeah but you know it's it's okay. back to the interesting things. Uh, what would you say has been the most rewarding experience of your research career?
1: Hmm. Um, You know, and it's kind of funny because I'm, I'm sort of the typical uh, introverted kind of person in STEM, but I I still think that the most rewarding experiences are um, teaching and mentoring uh, younger people So I and I worked in academia for five years before I transitioned to uh, back to uh, the private sector work. Uh, And I just think teaching college students, it's such a it's such an interesting part of their lives when they're making decisions about their future and they're often very stressed about (laughs) about making big decisions and it's probably some of the the first time that they're making some kind of large life decisions about what to study and what they're going to be when they grow up and and connecting with them about uh, statistics and applied science and and just trying to um spark interest in, in some of them here and there uh, about doing this kind of work uh, in their lives. And so that's always been the most rewarding thing for me. And so as I've moved into the private sector, you know, I've, I've lost some of that, but I, I've also still been able to teach and uh, as I think I get further along, I, I'll be able to mentor as well. Um, Yeah. But, you know, I think something that's different between academia and private sector is the pace of the work Um, in private sector. You know, there's always things to do and they always had to be done yesterday. So so there's very little time or, or rather it's very easy not to set aside time for. Um, documenting your work and creating a very good record Um, and often I think companies struggle with uh, having ways to train new hires and uh, and cross-train folks and produce you know teaching materials and that sort of thing so my experience with teaching in academia has carried over in interesting ways in that um, I've been someone who's really uh, championed documenting work and producing producing really good documents of record of, of what we do uh, that can be used to teach other people and just be used as kind of a definition of what we do in our teams, especially in the biostatistics team of um just explaining to others, you know, what our function is and, and how we do our jobs. Uh, so, so that's what I am really passionate about that, that teaching element.
0: That's awesome. And
1: it's so great to hear that that's
0: carried over as well. Um, what would you say has been the most challenging experience of your research career?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, as a as a someone in acad- academia and someone who's producing research products, um, publication is something that is important, uh, but it it can be a very challenging process um, for people in academia. You know, you need to publish. It's it's a metric by which your career is judged, and by which you know maybe your your continued employment is contingent on. So, so it's quite important to publish. That's I think quite a bit different in the private sector, and maybe depends on where you work. Where I work now, um, publishing is not a requirement, uh, but you know the publication process can be very long. Uh, peer review can take a long time uh it's i have peer reviewed many manuscripts it it's not easy to do a good job and also there's not a lot of incentives to be a good peer reviewer uh, so so the peer peer review process is just pretty tough um, as someone who consumes research products I think almost everyone goes straight to the preprint sites. The most uh, most common one being archive. Um, So, like, I never really read journals. The only time I really read journals is for papers that are quite old. Uh, If I'm looking for something new and on the cutting edge, I'm finding it in the preprints. Uh, Because by the time it gets published, it's probably like three or four years old. So so that's a struggle um, if you're in the publication game. It can be frustrating to deal with the time frame and reviewers who are um, not really the best sources of feedback. I think the the best feedback I usually get about work is from uh, peers who are working on similar things who are looking to uh, consume my work and then maybe apply it in what they're doing. And then and I, then I can have discussions with them about their perspective on things uh, because it's really the people who go and consume that research work who become most familiar with it, much more familiar than the r- reviewers often become. Uh, and so it ultimately it becomes a system where I think if you go and you present at conferences or if you're just uh, well connected with people in your field who are all kind of consuming each other's work and using it, um, that's a good system for getting the feedback uh, where the the publication peer review publication is is kind of lagging. Um, so so that's tough. I think, you know, moving into the private sector, it's a much better relationship with journals because our philosophy is we're going to publish something when we think that we have something really important to say that is going to be a public service. So, so we kind of view publication as, um, yeah, as, as public service work, as what we can contribute to the public good as long as we can do that without sacrificing a competitive advantage you know in in the business uh, so i I think that's probably a better way of approaching publication than the position of most people in academia.
0: Have you found any specific challenges within uh the field of agriculture
1: um, I mean. The scale of the work is a challenge because um, I think we talked about this a little bit earlier, growing you know thousands of varieties of, of just one crop in hundreds of locations um, year over year. It, it produces a huge amount of data that's uh, and, and it takes a huge team of people to make those experiments happen. So I, I think the scale of it, the number of people involved across different geographies and countries, that that that's a huge challenge.
0: That's a lot of logistics
1: coordinating. Oh, yeah.
0: Now, does that fall on you guys, the people de- designing the experiments, or who runs the logistics of that?
1: Oh, logistics people. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's actually another tour that I've been on uh, was to see... Um, our warehouses, uh, where we have um, basically where seed is packet is prepared and sorted and packaged for shipment, uh, which is largely internal. That's really used for you know seed that goes from our seed production facility uh, to out to experimenters all over the world who are planting it in ex- experimental field. Plots. Yep. These
0: experimenters uh, are they, Corteva employees, are they independent farmers? who are getting paid as contractors. How like how? Yeah. Is, do you know how that works?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. So the the breeding programs are all you know. Th- those are Corteva people. So we have our own land and facilities and research farms all over the world. Um, occasionally, even in Illinois, you might drive past one. Uh, it might, you know, be, might say like a pioneer research farm or research facility. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Oftentimes they're pretty nondescript. So you, you might not even know what you're driving past, but, uh, yeah, they're all over the place. Um, got, you know, hundreds of them in, in the United States and, and all across the world where we have breeding programs. Now there is also some experimentation that goes on with farmers who buy our seed. Okay. Um, we have what we call like field agronomists who work with uh, farmers who are our uh, consumers. They're they're our uh, our customers, um, and I am not involved with that those types of um, data sets or data collection or experiments. Um, but we do have some, some types of experiments that go on with um, farmers. Now, what I would say about that is uh, why we don't do more of that or why that's not primarily what we do is that if you're working with farmers, you have a lot less control, right? The farmer is in control of their farming practices so different farmers do things quite a bit differently and so when you're dealing with that data that's data that you have so much less control over how it is produced. Could you make the comparison of that being like
0: uh, in vitro versus in vivo or like a a lab uh, environment versus a real world application though? Do you think that data would be useful?
1: Oh yeah and that data is definitely useful but yeah, that the difference there is what we would call controlled experiments. Uh, so our our field experiments are largely what we would call randomized controlled trials, which is sure. Yep. Here, you know, that's something you probably hear associated with pharmaceutical industry, but that nomenclature really comes. M- more from agriculture it's uh, we we can control where the fields are, what we plant when we plant, whether it's irrigated or not how how it's farmed, how it's managed so we control a lot of things about that farming process um, and you know randomization where where different plants are planted in the fields um, all, all of that we can control. Whereas the data that we are getting from farmers is what we would call observational data. Um, we can get observations from them. We have basically no control over how how the data is generated. Sure.
0: So what are you most excited to be pursuing currently?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it goes back to uh, the... The drone data is one of the biggest things that's happening right now that's going to change a lot about our current practices, the more and more that we incorporate that kind of data. Um, Most I would say most of the traits about plants that we measure now um, are only measured one time, Um, of course, with yield that's measured at harvest, but there's a lot of other traits having to do with disease. Uh, response or, or other traits of plants that could be measured many times. We, you know, we could uh, ideally we could fly drones really often and kind of record the entire growth cycle of of individual plants. You know, that could happen in some future state we we could actually get individual plant level data and that's a point that i probably should have <laughs> emphasized a long time ago in this conversation you know when when we're talking about plant when we're talking about field data you know the data is really aggregated to what we call plots so sure. a, a plot has a certain dimension and depending on the size of the plot and the crop and the planting density, it's gonna have a different number of plants, approximate number of plants in it. But the the data that we collect is, is not data from just one plant, but it's data from a bunch of plants that's aggregated together and that's one data point. And so okay. a, a field, even a really big field might be, you know, I don't know, um, 50 by 80 plots and each plot, yeah, something like that, but that's that's actually each one of those plots might be you know many many plants. So right. it's it's not, and this is probably what people you know wouldn't really uh, wouldn't really know about. We don't have plant level data on very many experiments. Uh, sure, you know, plant level data would mean a human has to look at every single plant, right? And so yeah, we don't, we don't really do that. Sure. Uh, but you know, that is something, you know, the way technology is going that could eventually happen, where actually the amount of data that we have explodes because of the ability to, correct, to collect data in a much more automated fashion. Sure. Exactly. And it's not just uh, flying drones. There are drones that walk or roll through fields. Yeah. Um, I was thinking of instead
0: of a normal camera, you fly a drone with some LiDAR on all sorts of
1: data at the time. Uh yeah that we already do that <laughs> yeah yeah it's yeah we have cameras that are not just the visible spectrum but all sorts uh we also have there's ground penetrating radar there's, yeah. there's, all, there's there's all sorts of really cool stuff that i think is going to uh vastly increase the amount of data that we have that's going to create a lot of uh opportunity for us to figure out how to extract usable information from that data. And then how do we have to change the statistical models that we use to accommodate all of that data? And even how do we have to change the, you know, in the way down to the nitty gritty of the computer code, how do we write fast, executable computer code to, uh, to actually make all of these models happen to process all of these models and data and to do it fast because one of the things I mentioned before was um you know we get to harvest and we we have to do it now (laughs) we we have to generate uh all of these data summaries for the breeders so that they can make decisions in a timely fashion and so we don't we don't have time to to waste so um yeah, those are just future things that are coming that yeah. we're we're going to be dealing with and uh, making, I think, huge improvements to uh, agri- agricultural science. Too bad that the room temperature superconductor
0: material didn't really work out. We're going to have had quantum yeah, computing ready for right. you guys next yeah. week.
1: Yeah, we'd, we'd love to get some of those quantum computers, sure. But uh, yeah, I don't think we can wait for that.
0: I don't think so either. You've got, uh, what, maybe a month until stuff starts coming in?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, and for some of my rice experiments, we'll have mid-season traits in a few weeks. There you go.
0: Well, what advice would you give to young people who are interested in a career in science or
1: statistics? Uh, wow. Um yeah, I so I think one thing I would say is you know and th- and this is definitely something that I struggled with when I was maybe uh late high school and and into college um I think young people tend to approach these decisions about what they're going to study with uh a sense of finality like I'm gonna pick this major uh, that's biology, and then that means I'm I'm gonna do biology for the rest of my life, and and I don't know if I maybe I like chemistry more, so you know. But if I pick biology, I won't get to do chemistry, right? So I think that young people put they put a huge amount of stock into these decisions, but I think what what you find in practice is that people's career arcs can change a lot yeah. and people's careers can kind of become what they make out of them yeah. and you know that doesn't mean that the degree they get doesn't make any difference at all it certainly does but the i think the degree it it's a way of opening a door um but then once you go through the door <laughs> um there's a lot of other there's a lot of ways to proceed from there and so you know at Corteva we have analytical chemists who become project managers you know we have people in software development who who go on to do you know cybersecurity, or uh or you know we have people in plant breeding who move into regulatory. So especially if you, if you join a large organization, there's going to be a huge number of opportunities and you'll find that, you know, what the first thing that you studied is is not going to be 10 years into your career, the the most uh, valuable thing that you know about. It's, it's going to be, all of the stuff you learned since you got there (laughs) Uh, and the relationships that you built and your industry knowledge and your company knowledge is going to be what makes you uh, valuable and, and people are going to probably want you to stick around. And so, uh, you know, you can work with your, your managers and find, find the right way for your career to move forward. So I guess I, I would, what I would say to young people is, Definitely study what you're interested in. Study what you're good at. Uh, study what you think that you will want to be doing for five years. But don't worry about what you're going to be doing in ten or fifteen years. And and don't think that what you're you're committing to is is uh, the end all be all because things are going to change.
0: Yeah, your entire industry could evaporate. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, hopefully positive change, but...
0: Well, that may not necessarily be a bad thing. Yeah?
1: Yeah. Well, that's true,
0: too. So... You well, know. Dr. Nick, um, if people wanted to get in touch with you about your methods of documentation or your mindset that you pulled from academia into the public sector, or just want to drop a line and say thanks for uh, a great entertaining and interesting podcast where can they find you
1: oh well sure i mean you could you could email me um at nick n-i-c-k dot s-y-r-i-n-g, S-Y-R-I-N-G at corteva.com corteva is c-o-r-t-e-v-a um but you know you can also look me up on linkedin that's fine um if you want to learn more about corteva uh, probably their Twitter feed, honestly, uh, for as long as Twitter still remains viable, uh, sure. is is a, is a pretty decent place to go. Corteva is probably a company most people have never heard of. It's no. Part of that is because the merger is only about five years old. Um, so it hasn't been around that long in its current form. Sure. Um, but yeah, go ahead and follow Corteva. Yeah, I'll give them a follow. Yeah, look up some of the uh, similar companies like Syngenta, BASF, UPL, Bayer Crop Science, they're all doing um, similar things, just not as good. So, (laughs) but yeah.
0: Well, that's great. Well, I am going to have to have you go down to the bug lab and, Get me some oh, man. some chatty bug scientists because I would love to talk to those folks. Uh, it, I
1: can yeah. definitely point. Yeah, I will definitely point you in their direction. But I'm not gonna go back there. I'll just <laughs> I'll just email them. I don't think I want to go back into that. So oh you
0: sleep great yeah. creepy crawlies in your yeah ways.
1: well it really hits home when you go in there and the number of airlocks you walk oh. through because bugs are really good at getting places you don't want them to go if they get out so yeah so you really know you're in it when you've gone through like the fourth airlock oh man yeah
0: <laughs> that would be yeah. I, I would love to talk to those folks and the the plant scientists the chemists it sounds like you have a wonderful team of very interesting people over there
1: oh yeah yeah it's It's pretty cool when you you know you go in everybody's a, a phd you know that you, you definitely know that the the place is in good hands yeah great
0: all right nick well thank you for your time and for this wonderful podcast
1: yeah no problem blake thanks for having me